You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today is J.G. Thorwell. Hello. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Probably a name most of our listeners are familiar with, but uh, fetus, steroid maximus, manorexia, nurse with wound, uh, probably too many more things to list. Wise blood. You've been making industrial music for over 40 years. I don't use the I word. I hate hate the word industrial. What do you prefer? Just music, really. I mean, I'll qualify that. I feel like Throbbing Gristle started, you know, a label called Industrial and probably coined coined the term industrial music for industrial people. And then after that, there were maybe some people that were informed by that aesthetic. And then there was a, a wave of musicians like Einstein and Neubauten who were using um, detritus and metal objects uh, to make music. And, and it was definitely, it was like, it was a, um, there was a through line to, to the industrial age and what they were doing and that they were using metallic objects to make sounds and stuff like that. And it, I think that that was truly industrial music. Then there came a wave of people who were making distorted electronic music and then that became called industrial music and i don't think that that's that doesn't fit into my idea of what that is i somehow got lumped into that and i feel like i've what i've always wanted to do is defy categories and i've worked in a lot of different platforms and i i feel like i'm a liminal artist where i i'm straddling a lot of different areas like i write for string quartets and chamber ensembles and i do scoring work and i do um installation work and i i do you know and then the records that i make i think are like sort of anywhere from um soundtrack inspired to psychedelia to noise to you know they're all over the place so i don't like to be you know lumped into any one category and i don't really feel like um i have um there's there's maybe one or two people that i consider to be peers but you know um i don't really want to you know be part of a movement well thank you thank you for for clarifying that but i when i do use that term it's because i think of you alongside of acts like conscious and i know about and, and psychic tv and coil and robin gristle i mean you've you've been making music that long you were you know involved in producing early coil so i guess where did all these inspirations and and this sort of melting pot of your sound come from i mean you, you like you said yourself you know it's it's hard to categorize you your music is is uncategorizable because it has so many different influences and goes in so many different directions. Yeah. I mean, my my earliest musical memory is being in kindergarten and and singing Viva Las Vegas to a little girl whose name was Viva. Um and uh and then I was I've I've always been like a musical like a, a sponge for culture. And I devour it like a whale devours plankton. And then I um, somehow spew out my um, distorted version of that, which is which goes through my prismatic lens and somehow comes out the other side of, of you know, what I want to do and what I want to make. But 
think I'm, you know, I'm influenced by everything that, that I take in and any one project has a different intention, you know, and different sonic intention. And I try not to, uh, you know, I probably have hallmarks, sonic hallmarks of what I've done, but I try to, I try to move forward and it, you know, what I'm doing, it's a continuum, but it's, it's, it's moving forward. And, it, you know, I try not to repeat myself too much. And was Fetus your first foray into making music, or at least in a in a public manner? The first recordings that I made, I was I was you know were kind of in my bedroom and not in a public manner. And then and then um, I, from that, I joined a group briefly who um, was formed out of the ashes of Pragvec in London. And I joined that group and played synthesizer and and various objects. And we made an album which came out under the name Spec Records and it was called No, no Cowboys. And that was kind of the um, catalyst that made me feel like I don't want to work in a democratic environment. I want to um, stand and fall by my own merits as limited as they may be. So that, that uh, was the impetus for me to book some time in a recording studio and um, go in and um, make a single, which I recorded and mixed in one day. And that was the, the Fetus Under Glass single, which I made in 1980. And it came out on the 1st of January, 1981. But prior to that, I'd also been in the studio with Nurse With Wound and um, we'd made a bunch of recordings. And I think some of the those releases maybe predate Fetus. Didn't you also do some recording with Cum? Yeah, we made an album. Mm called I'm Jack, which was kind of um, recorded in one night. Well, my part Absolutely. was anyway. Absolutely classic. Before we continue our conversation, a quick word from our sponsors. 1938, Suyama, Japan. Distraught over being diagnosed with tuberculosis and rejected by the community, Mutsuo Toy went on a nighttime rampage, killing almost half of the local villagers before taking his own life. 1979, Southern California. Reuniting after having met in prison, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris go on a five-month spree of rape, torture, and murder. Self-Abuse Records presents two more volumes in the Case History series. Linecraft presents another historical examination of the instinct towards violence, and Yellow Gas Flames takes a deep and uncomfortable look into the depraved minds of two sadists. Also still available are Case Histories from Lysuria, Focomelis, and Grunt. Visit selfabuserecords.net. And, and when did you move from Australia to London? 1978. Gotcha. So you you were firmly in London at this time. Yeah, I met um, William Bennett through Steve Stapleton from Nurse with Wound. But I had seen William Bennett when he in uh, when he used to play in Essential Logic because I really liked Essential Logic, and I went and saw them. You know, when I I landed in London and was really soaking up music, I was kind of the catalyst for me to move to London was you know the punk rock explosion, and I wanted to be and um, which which democratized music making. And I had learned some instruments as I was growing up, but, you know, I have always had a problem with sight reading. And then punk rock kind of said that you don't have to be a virtuoso on an instrument, anyone can do it. And that's when I started playing instruments by myself and moved to London. I knew I wanted to do something involved with music, but I didn't know what it would be. And uh, I just started to go, you know, I got a job and I went to see tons of music and it was an incredibly fertile time 
for music in London. It was, you know, incredible. And you you saw Thriving Gristle at one of the, if I'm not mistaken, the infamous show where they locked people in. Or how yeah. did that? What was, how did that show go again? What it was the, the the gas? Yeah, that was um, at the Centro Iberico in I think it was in West London. Maybe it was it was a old school that was turned into a community center or an anarchist center or something. And they, it was it was an afternoon show, and they started playing before. I mean, I was still in line trying to get in and they'd already started playing and it was freezing cold and they were playing, you know, it was, the music was real and the music and performance were incredibly confrontational in a really exciting kind of way. And they played these castration films, which were, I guess was was kind of a castration fantasy about someone who had raped Cozy. And it was full on, it was a full on experience. I mean, it was really confrontational and it was amazing and it was really exciting. Um, so yeah, that was the, that was in January, 1979. So great. And what were your parts on the I'm Jack recording? What was your contribution to I that? just I I just read. I mean, I, my my part is just reading. And he I mean William, I think I think he got me to read extracts from the Marquis de Sade and Scream. And he took the recordings and processed them and until they were unrecognizable. Yeah, William was at that point, I think he worked really fast. You know, he made records. They all had black sleeves with the artwork glued to them. Yeah, there was actually it was like kind of a, a template of a sleeve with a design on one side, and he'd get them pressed up and bang them out, and then they'd all be sold in Japan or something, and then he'd go on to the next thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was that project. Uh, going from seeing Throbbing Gristle in 1979 to releasing your own record in 1980 and then making your what uh death was in 1982 they came out uh, that was 98 1981 81? 81 81 i released two two seven inches and death they all came out in it's wild. 81 and uh and the following year i released well actually and then there was a i think the following year was the 12 inch ep and another seven inch and ache came out so it was like all of that like three seven inches of 12 inch and two albums came out in i put them all out in 18 months which is kind of insane when i look back at it well you mentioned sort of stylistically jumping around and at least for me when i was first getting exposed to your music things like deaf and ache seem like a, a pair of recordings and then moving on to hole and nail. Those also seem like they, they pair well together. Is there any sort of a, uh, even, uh, in title, like something like flow and blow, is there something that, uh, ties pairs of albums together for you? Or is that just how it happens? Um, no, not really. I mean, deaf, I, th I see deaf and ache as two different albums, but they were recorded quite closely together but there's a i think there's a huge huge leap in my abilities and and um between deaf and ache even though there's only a few months gap between them because i was really figuring it out in public and at that point if this is like pre sampling pre midi even most of that you know nearly 
everything on that is uh, either recorded acoustically or this the sounds sound like samples would be tape loops and um you know uh i, I said it wasn't called sampling it was called music concrete in those days um and you know i i had there was a lot of audio there was audio building blocks and there was luckily i i had a lot of audacity and i had a ton of ideas which i figured out systems of how to commit them to tape and i had you know a couple of really good fast engineers who really helped me along and and those all that stuff was recorded in an eight track studio but i think that i was developing ways of um, achieving what i had in my head and not necessarily i wasn't necessarily successful on definite in getting out what what was in my head out onto tape and um, I think that the first time I really did that was on whole. The interesting thing is, I, I think um, because of the um, the fact that I wasn't 100% successful in getting what, what was in my head out onto tape on those albums led to having, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a balancing act that you have to perform, especially when you're a solo artist like myself instead of like having a band in a room where you, someone comes in with a song and you know what the instrumentation is and you know kind of what it's going to sound like what i what i do can sound like anything it can sound like an orchestra it can sound like it can be minimalism it could be like a just a, like a tone it could, you know it, it could go anywhere when you have a blank canvas like that but usually i have an idea of what i want to do pretty fleshed out in my head and sometimes i'll you know, in those days, I was making complex numerical plans in advance to, you know, of what order I would record the overdubs in and the the entire arrangement of the song. But as I'd be recording it and building it up from from the ground up, sometimes starting with the drums, starting sometimes with piano or something like that, depending on what order I had to record things in, then hearing this the sound not fleshed out would in, invoke something else and I would go in a different direction with it. And it would be a matter of following that in that inspirational path and steering it back to what the original conception of the song was. And sometimes it went very far away from what the original conception was and you had to let it lead itself. But it, it took, it took some time to, um, to know how to guide a song and how to, to keep the original intention or, you know, or let it let it go down a different path, and sometimes I, things were going down different paths. They turn out totally different than what I expected. I slowly, I got more successful at realizing what was in my head and getting it out you know, on tape, but also taking into account the avenues that I discovered along the way, which I didn't expect. You know, and those those things, you know, those things are are important as well. And a lot of those things are sonic things. Those are things like from discovering the sound that I can make in a hallway or a stairway or discovering that um, that actually the case that the drums come in sounds better than the drums and things like that. There's a lot of experimentation along the way. Did your work in tape loops or, as you said at the time, music concrete, was that informed by working with someone like Steve Stapleton or is that something you were already interested in before you started working with him? 
uh, around that time, you know, 78, 79, I started to get interested in 20th century classical music and experimental music and music concrete. And but also like meeting Steve Stapleton was um, really influential on me because he had a really deep knowledge of um, experimental music and had a huge record collection. He turned me onto a lot of stuff. But not only that, what Steve brought to the table was um, punk rock taught me that um, you didn't have to be a virtuoso on an instrument. Steve Stapleton taught me you don't even need an instrument. You know, anything can make a sound. You don't even need a sound source. You know, you can just use the mixing desk itself or you can take things, you can process them. And by the time, you know, just use sound as building blocks. And, you know, he, Steve had just like the totally freest approach to music you know like anything goes and that was like that was very impactful on me and but what i was doing was sometimes working in more abstract compositions and sometimes and a lot of the time working in more um song structure but at the same time i had been discovering people like stockhausen and cage and and reading their reading stuff that they wrote you know and around that time a lot of the minimalists were also actually touring. So I saw Steve Reich, you know, with his ensemble played drumming live in London in about 1980. And I think Steve Reich was was really uh, influential on me in his phasing experiments and his early tape experiments, like It's Gonna Rain and Come Out. When I heard those things, they just ripped my head off, you know, and I would listen to them over and over on headphones and and tried my own you know, versions of, of that as well. So that stuff was really influential. And, you know, and also Philip Glass was was playing around at the time. And on the back of the first Fetus single, there's a little list of um, uh, forthcoming releases. And uh, one of the forthcoming releases is was called Fetus on the Beach, which is a, um, a reference to Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. So a lot of those things were happening at the same time. And and also, um, I think also discovering Penderecki was a big deal for me as well, um, who I discovered through um, the, the, the soundtrack of The Shining and then went back and then heard things like Threnody for Hiroshima and this, this cluster music, you know, and um, so all of that stuff um, was really influential. But then at the same time, there was incredible music happening all around in the in London. I mean, like I was going out like, you know, maybe five times, sometimes five times a week to see see bands. And on any one night, you might go to a triple bill, and it might be you know Joy Division, Cabaret Voltaire, and you know the Tiller Boys or something, you know, or you know. So you know, there was um, an incredible amount of exciting music happening. Well, it seems like with all that combined. You can certainly hear a lot of that, but I can also hear something maybe earlier, you know, maybe when you were younger, hear some stuff like Alice Cooper, maybe. Is that oh, yeah. something that you were? So, yeah, yeah so in, in a way, it's almost like that to me, I see this bridge from those early days of of something like that. I could hear in maybe something that you were also mixing in with all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's all, there was always everything from my subconscious was always seeping in. And that was anything from, you know, some of the most influential, the music that was most influential on me was music from the soundtrack of Warner Brothers cartoons when I was growing up, you know, and 
that stuff and th- and to me that's that was how music was made i mean where you know it's it's all in little snatches which are a bar and a half and two bars long and like and then it goes from one thing to another and then changes tempo and and you know that's just that was to me that's how music was made and then like you say um artists when i was coming up it was people like roxy music and alice cooper and bowie and um the sensational alex harvey band and frank zappa and um and also prog rock like emerson lake and palmer and king crimson and stuff that that type of stuff that was for me that was how music was made and if you listen to say alice cooper schools out you know they'll just break you know he'll break into like a big band thing and then you know then they're all of a sudden they're doing west side story and you know it's like it's you know everything is permitted (laughs) and uh and that's and you know that uh had a big impact on me well, you can hear it. I mean, uh, you mentioned the big band and the big band lounge and Exotica and all those things have found their way into fetus, especially since the early stuff and the the stylistic changes in the early eighties, sort of learning all these tricks in the studio and just sort of figuring out what a studio could be and what could be an instrument. How did that go from producing your own records to say something like producing coil scatology and how did that friendship start? That kind of came about from actually hanging out at the Sun Bazaar offices. Um, Sun Bazaar was the record label that um, that I eventually, um, after those early self, you know, self-immolation albums that I'd released myself. Um, then I I was introduced to Steve-O from Sun Bazaar through Matt Johnson from the, the who was a good friend of mine, and he turned Steve-O into my stuff, and I. Signed with some bizarre eventually, and they put out some of my subsequent records. And um, they'd also signed Psychic TV, and as a result of that, the Coil was kind of a satellite of Psychic TV to start with. And and uh, Jeff Rushton, aka John Balance, was um, was a member of both Psychic TV and then Coil, and we would. Uh, I would see him up at the Sun Bazaar offices and we'd always chat and get along and, you know, he'd ask me how I made my records and he liked the way my records sounded. And I kind of came about through that, you know, liking the sounds that I'd made and um, and asked how I made them and then asked if I'd be interested in producing. But producing, you know, I, I produced a bunch of stuff around that time and I think, you know, producing is... Um, I think the the name produ- the word producing has a different connotation now in 2022 as it did then. There's two, you know, there's two definitions of producing, and um, a lot a lot of the way that people think of producers now is someone that makes beats. Um, produce, you know, the way that um, producing was then was. Different people have different ways of production. Some people are more hands off and just want to have the last word and let the artist do their thing. Other people are more involved with the compositional process. I mean, I was trying to do a sort of a balance of the two things and draw out from them what they want or draw out from or maybe throw in ideas and like let's explore different avenues. And, you know, we we did a lot of different stuff and um, you know, suggesting different ways of recording the vocals and but um they had demoed a lot of things and you know, one I think at least one track was already finished and mixed for on Scatology, and that's the track that Gavin Friday sang 
and then some of them were we built up from scratch and you know there was a lot more it was a lot more collaborative and and then pretty soon after that we did the cover version of tainted love which came out as a 12 inch and we kind of all played that you know played on that so yeah it was a it was a it was a good relationship because they were you know they were open and they were friends and you know yeah very they were very open well, and even stylistically, I mean, they also can, you know, sort of defy genre from the very get go of all these different things that they would include in their music when you listen to something like Scatology and Horse Rotivator. Uh, your time at Some Bazaar must have been pretty impactful. I mean, uh, a lot of the names you mentioned when I when I think of Some Bazaar, the first thing that actually comes to mind is if you can't please yourself, you can't please your soul, which is sort of this fantastic collection with you and Coil and the the and Anshes and Neubauten on it. I mean, it's a, a really stellar compilation uh how long how long were you at some bazaar and, and what did that entail i was there for a long time i mean i um they released whole the fetus albums hole and nail and thaw and then this fetus compilation sync and um and the wise blood wise blood album it came out on k42 <clears throat> which was a satellite of some bizarre, but ostensibly it was some bizarre. So Sync came out in maybe 1990. So it was a while. The first, the first, I started to get involved with them in an 83, I think. And that's when I made all the recordings that turned into Hole and The Attendant 12 Inches. They came out, but they didn't, that stuff didn't start, I think it didn't start coming out until the following year. And from the earliest Fetus records, you were also doing all of your own graphic design for these records, right? I mean, you were, you were responsible for how these records looked yeah. up until gash, which is still your, your direction, just not your photograph. Right. And your, your art on the side. Yeah, that, that was my idea. Um, um, when I was got involved with Sony, um, I was actually recording in, um, Times Square at this studio and I, um, and I would come out at night and I'd be in the middle of Times Square and it would just be an explosion of lights. Actually, the, in, the, in the studio where I reported, I looked down, I looked out the window onto this like 50 foot bottle of Coca-Cola, which had, had a hydraulic uh, cap on it and the straw that would come out. And uh, <laughs> that was my view in the studio, like looking at this straw going up and down out of this big um, Coca-Cola bottle. Um, and so I can't, I would come out of the studio and then they, there was this jumbotron, this big, I mean, there's not, there's screens everywhere in Times Square now, but at the time this was the only one, it was this huge TV screen and down the bottom, it said Sony. And I was like, huh, oh. um, that's what piqued my curiosity. I was like, well, I wonder if I could take that over, you know? And, uh, so I went up there to, and spoke to the people up at Sony and, um, they liked the idea. And so um, I did the design. Um, I thought, well, I, what I want to do is make a design and project it onto that and then photograph that. And then that would be the cover. Um, so I made the design and the design encompassed a bit of tattoo flash, uh, which was a, a sailor girl who was kind of topless. And first they, um, First, they said we can't put that up because she's topless and there's nipples. And first, so we, you know, took took the nipples out in Photoshop. And they were like, "No, no, you got, <laughs> you know, it's still, it's still, still no good. You've got to put a bra on her." 
and so um so we had to um we had to do that for the um for the um sensitive masses that would be in, in Times square at the time um <laughs> but um it was great we um we had a, a record release party for that at the Marriott Marquis um hotel in this kind of bar there and the bar overlooked the jumbotron the guy from the label could just call up at any point and say okay put the put the image on the screen and so that would come up and while there was a listening party <laughs> for that, for that album and then i was telling alex winter about this whole thing who was a friend of mine and he was uh i was telling him about the the jumbotron thing and and he uh he started making all these suggestions and i said well do you want to shoot a video so he uh he had made a bunch of videos and he's a if you don't know who alex is he's a actor and director and, yes um and probably best known for for bill and ted right he's known for that but i mean I, he's also he's a, like a very prolific director and he's done tons of stuff and he made the um freaked movie and he made the frank frank zappa documentary recently and so he made it he did an incredible video for me and um and then that's we, the video for verklempt yeah and then we had the video projected on the jumbotron and a couple of times i was in times square around that time because sony were up near there and it randomly would come onto the screen um so that was that was um that was kind of a crazy experience with the jumbotron um, <laughs> Well, going from working with Steven Stapleton, you know, in the late seventies and early eighties and producing coil to being on Sony and <laughs> having your, your album art on the jumbotron overlooking times square is a, a pretty wild journey in itself. Mm-hmm. But between that, there was also uh, Wiseblood, your project with Rolly Musselman. And mm-hmm. also you started steroid Maximus in the early nineties, right? Yeah. Well, let's talk about Wiseblood a bit. How did that come about? Um, well, for, I mean, I, I, I was in New York and I wanted to do something, um, you know, I moved to New York in about 83. Um, I came here to do a show at Danceteria. Um, it was this project called Immaculate Consumptive, which was myself, Lydia Lunch, Nick Cave and Mark Almond. And we did two shows at Danceteria, Halloween. So next, so on Monday, it'll be 39 years since we did that um and uh and i just fell in love with new york when i came here and i just stayed and um i was going back and forth between new york and london a bit but i was mainly in new york and um when i got an apartment here um i decided i kind of wanted to had some ideas for doing a collaborative project and the the initial idea was i wanted to do something with voice and four drummers and um one of the first people people I met in New York was um, Michael Girard, and we became good buddies. And we would go out and cause havoc um, five nights a week, you know. And then I saw Swans at the Pyramid here, and it was one of the most wrenching, incredible, um, cathartic shows I've seen in my life. It was in, absolutely incredible. That lineup of Swans was incredible. Um, it was just. Rolly Moseman on drums, Norman Westberg on guitar, 
Harry Crosby on bass and Michael, who was just singing and he had a he had a volume pedal. The volume pedals control the pedal, the volume of these tape loops, these cassette tape loops that he'd made, which were kind of a wall of noise. And so he could control this noise. And it was this incredible show. And Swans, you know, it was around the time, it was before they, they made the album Cop. The combination of things that were going on with those four musicians were was just extraordinary. And I sort of heard they were like, um, like you could hear echoes of like Stooges, but it, I mean, maybe Black Sabbath, but it was so dissonant and slowed down, but really explosive. But also the way that Rolly played drums, it was really pounding and minimal, but at the same time, there were these little hints that you heard of, I thought of John Bonham, like these kind of like little ghost notes and the way that it pulled together. So it had that this kind of in, insane energy. So I was really impressed by Rolly's drumming and he was the first drummer that I thought of approaching. And I just spoke to Michael about it because I didn't want to think that he was I was poaching him. But um he said, no, 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 go ahead. So I I met up with Rolly and Rolly at the time was um, setting up a, he had a loft in Tribeca and he was setting up a small recording studio. So we started like messing around with ideas and talking. And then it kind of stopped with Rolly being the, the drummer. I didn't, I stopped with that idea of the four drummers and it just turned into me and Rolly. Well, what I liked about, you know, and then I had this idea of the idea of the content being sick, macho and violent. And I also liked the idea that it was, music that very much reflected New York, but it was made by two. So that that was kind of how Wise Boy came about. Um, and we started playing live. We got some material together and um, yeah, it turned into an album. And then eventually it turned into an EP as well. And we did some touring and, and that's what it was. Is there a, a real life story behind someone drowned in my pool? Uh, no, it's... <laughs> Fully, fully from the imagination. Okay. I mean, in fact, tomorrow, and, and I, I, I uh, picked this in the um, in the lyrics. There's a random date that I picked, which was the 28th of October, um, where this incident happened. And tomorrow is the 28th of October. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's one of the it's one of the it's the other um, fetus national holiday. Right. <laughs> Which is the first of September. First of September, of course. Actually, uh is the Viva in anything? Is that a reference to the Viva you sang Viva Las Vegas to? No, I don't, no, no one's actually asked that. No. Uh, <laughs> no, it's 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 Viva like long live. Okay. <laughs> uh so what about uh steroid Maximus? What did what did starting steroid Maximus offer you or do for you that that Fetus wasn't? Well Fetus um Fetus had increasingly become almost 50% instrumental. Um, and um, and I didn't, didn't think that those works were actually being kind of perceived. I didn't feel like the, the, the breadth of what Fetus was was kind of recognized. And so I decided to make a project where, which was all instrumental and that that, that aspect of my practice could breathe. And it was also an opportunity to do co to collaborate with some people, and it, I think it was just I just wanted to be free from the shackles of whatever the expectations were that you know I had built up from doing fetus for whatever it was at that point, maybe eight or nine years, and 
because I find that when I start any pro any project, at first it has no limitations; it can go anywhere. And then, increasingly, as as I create more with the project, I have whatever the last iteration of that project was to live up to and to build on and to expand from and to deviate from. And um, when I start a new project, it's there's there's um, there's no rules, you know, again. And so um, it was a liberation to start something like steroid Maximus. And I really needed it at that point. You know, I really needed to stretch out into that area, you know, and um, and it was also, you know, reflective of, you know, a lot of my other interests and and um, and that's kind of how it came about. Well, Steroid Maximus in in 1991, and you said that gave you a chance to sort of collaborate with other people because up until then, too, fetus fetus was was just you in the studio, right? You were you were the only person playing it up until I think is is it Gash? Yeah, you started having other people involved. The first fetus album that's had anyone else on it, yeah. And so that that collaboration with Steroid Maximus did. Do you think that led to sort of inviting other people into the studio for fetus or was uh, it out of necessity? No, not I, I think, I think that I just, um, I was just, you know, to invite other people to play on fetus was just like just challenging my rigidity. You know, you know, I felt like, you know, I had done that and there were just things that I wanted to do that, um, that I wanted to bring other people. They don't like, you know, and like having a live brass section, you know, um, which you can go so far with samples and and stuff like that, but just, you can't really beat you know a live brass section, you know, and um, and so yeah, I was just you know trying trying to grow, you know, and and working on Fetus solo in the studio for so many years, you know, there is so much going on in so many of these recordings, and early on you said a lot, you know, there was definitely tape loops being used and then eventually going on to samplers, correct? And, and when, when the sampler technology starts to evolve, how much does the technology affect what went into a fetus album, especially say in the eighties? Oh, a lot. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and it can, my technology continues to impact what I do. It always has. Sure. Um, because, uh, you know, because of what it facilitates and what, it, you know, what it can let me do. And I've always been interested in that and, and what I can do with it. And I continue to be interested in that, you know, and um, um, so, you know, when sampling technology came along, it was a way to organize what I'd been trying to do um, up until that point. And um, so that was liberating for me. And you know, and, and MIDI as well. I mean, MIDI was, was a big deal. Um, and then the next, and then next was the, you know, availability of computers and, you know, which I, I got my first computer in about 87 or something like that. And, and then eventually, you know, multi-track recording and, you know, being able to have my own studio set up changed the rules as well. And then where I could do pre-production at least. And then when finally I was making, you know, making all my music in my own studio, of course that changed everything again. And then 
the advent of hard disk recording and then and then on and on from there you know and and it continues to to impact what i do what challenges did you find working with other musicians when you took fetus out live um it was it, it dumbed down the music a bit um took out a lot of nuance i think um but it replaced it with something else and replaced it with something more organic and and um something very visceral and um and it was like it was like re reinterpreting the songs it, it wasn't trying to um to make them sound exactly like the original it was a different thing and you got like you know the proximity of like a whole lot of sweaty bodies and you know alcohol did you like touring or was it I mean, did you have mixed feelings about it? Because, I mean, eventually it seems that you went more towards back to the studio and a lot less touring at a certain point. Yeah, it was it was OK for a while. I don't really want to play the same song every night, you know, and certainly by the last tour that I did, which was maybe in 2000, something like that. The last thing I did as a rock band in the rock band format, I was so over it. You know, it just felt like it felt stale. You know, it felt like this is not I didn't feel like I was doing justice to the music and it just felt like, what am I doing? And so I just stopped it. And fortunately, what came out of this kind of discontent was I around about in the late 90s, I started, you know, I, I made a ton of recordings, which turned into um, eventually became five albums and they all came out around in the early 2000s, which was um, the fetus albums flow and blow and um the starred maximus album ectopia and um the manorexia first two manorexia albums and doing the first manorexia album was liberating in a similar way that um the you know when i started steroid maximus where i had like this blank canvas and i kind of intended it to be a drone album and then it went in a million different directions. And I wanted I wanted to, to explore making music with more space so that the sounds could breathe. And but it, but it, yeah, again, it took its it took its own course and I, I let it take the course that it needed to take. And then I'd sort of set precedent and built on that with the, the next album really quickly after that. And those albums ended up opening the doors a lot to the contemporary classical world weirdly enough and people hearing them ended ended up leading me to getting commissions from chamber ensembles i i saw you live on that uh flow tour in detroit at the magic stick and it was right. really fantastic show how uh how did you approach performing live again after taking such a long break and then what did how'd you go about putting together a band uh which which um are you talking about in that tour? Yeah, um, I don't think it had been a long break. I mean, I think I, I, I had, um, I think I'd been touring like I, I, you know, I didn't do a lot of tours. I toured in nineteen ninety and nineteen ninety one, and then nothing for the next few years. And then um, I toured in ninety five and ninety six when I was involved with Sony. And it did a few shows in 97 and then 2000, I put another group together and to it again, which was like around about when flow was done. And then, but then that was it, you know, so I've, I, I would say I've done, I did what seven tours or something, which isn't very much, 
um, compared to, you know, a lot of people I know. I've always been more about composing. Around the time of the Manorexia albums, I was approached by David Sefton at UCLA about a commission. I had two ideas, one of one of which was orchestrating the Steroid Maximus album, Ectopia, and the other was orchestrating Manorexia, which I wanted to do as a percussion ensemble. And we decided to do Steroid Maximus. And so I sat down with Steve Bernstein and we figured out how many um, voices we'd need to orchestrate that. And it and we figured out it would be eighteen, an eighteen piece ensemble, and so that's what we did. We we rescored the whole thing for an eighteen piece ensemble, and we did that in L.A. at Knitting Factory. I think it was two thousand two or two thousand three or something. It was going to be at Royce Hall, but then it, for some reason it, well, at the oh no, it's going to be at the Henry Fonda, and then for some reason it wasn't. Um, and it turned into two shows at Knitting Factory. And I think both shows were may have been on the same night. Um, and uh, that was incredible. And when I so was conducting that, I was like, no, this is what, this is uh, finally I'm hearing my music realized in the way that it's supposed to be. So uh, that was the first conducting excursion? Um, I'd done some... I mean, I did this thing in 1997 where I had a commission from, it was for a piece under the abutment of the Brooklyn Bridge. That was a piece, that semi-improvised piece. It's sort of an, an instructional piece where we had a, a clock set up. I had a timeline set up. I sat down with each musician. It was like a seven-piece group. And it was like a, a lead improvisation. So that was kind of conducting that. Um, but... Um, Sitting, you know, but the steroid Maximus thing was like, a, yeah, the first big deal kind of sitting down with the score and leading that ensemble. And um, yeah, that was um, that was kind of a real pivotal thing for me. Yeah, it seems like a very natural transition for your work, especially having a large scale orchestra. Yeah, I mean, I'd been making music that sounded like that for a long time, mm -hmm. able to um Put, a, put an ensemble together that can actually play that. And, you know, that was really exciting. You mentioned some of your early ideas or, or uh, the way you thought about music coming from Warner Brothers cartoons. And, of course, in the early 2000s, you would, you would start scoring a cartoon, the Venture Brothers. How did that come about? Uh, that came about from Steroid Maximus, actually. The creator and director, Chris McCulloch, a.k.a. Jackson Public, was turned on to steroid maximus by a friend of his i think gondwana land and um when he heard it it resonated with him as the kind of the musical universe that he imagined the venture brothers to be in he had just written a treatment for the pilot at the time and so he approached me and he was you know he was surprised that i lived in brooklyn and um he was in brooklyn too and so um, for the pilot, we um, we used um, a lot of existing score, and then I wrote a few, a few bits and pieces, and then it got picked up by Cartoon Network, and and they he approached me again, and said, "Are you interested in scoring this?" And first, I was um, a little worried about it because I thought I'd have to turn my back on a lot of my own stuff. But then I thought, well, when am I going to get an opportunity like this to do? you know make the music that i want to make or music that sounds like me and put it out into this entire different um you know 
um, universe. Um, so I said yes, and it was really hard to start with. I really had to sort of find my feet with it, you know, for the first after the first season, you know, and I learned a lot that first season. But then it, you know, there was, you know, it's it's like the uh, Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hour thing. There's a certain point. I think it was maybe season four where it was like all of a sudden, this is much easier and I'm much better at this, you know, and, um, and it just, it just got, it just got much better, you know, and, um, you know, I just sort of put in the time, you know, and I had always worked in that idiom. I'd always been super inspired by soundtracks and, um, and I, it was just, you know, I was in boot camp, you know, and, and I just kind of did it. And now, and weirdly enough, now I'm teaching a class in film scoring. That makes sense because <laughs> you've also, you've also been doing Archer for FX, right? Yeah. For the past uh, good handful of years. Came in on season seven. So it's been a while. Yeah. How has scoring for these animated things changed how you make your music? I see one aspect of scoring as problem solving. And, you know, you look at the, the arc of an episode or the arc of a scene and figure out where a cue starts and where a cue ends and what, what different um, things need to be hit in that scene and what emotions need to be expressed and what palette of instruments you want to use. And um, so these are, these are parameters that you can um, think of in, you know, before you even embark on scoring procedure you know um and and then go so you've got these this this kind of criteria and i can you know and i i can apply the a similar thing to my own compositions you know um particularly if you're scoring for an ensemble i'll set up a template with the instruments of the ensemble and then start working on cells and start to, you know, then I think about what's the tempo and what instrument do I want to start with? And, and so this is, it's a little bit more of an academic start to something. It's, it's kind of a, it's like, a, and, and also just, um, the, you know, using the muscle of composing every day, that's obviously impacted my own stuff. The challenge is to find time to do my own stuff. I do a lot of work with scoring. I do a lot of work with commissions and and I have about eight or nine albums in various states of completion now, two of which are coming out next year. You know, I have a I have a hungry legacy to feed. And so every every day counts. You said there was, you know, it took you maybe about four seasons to really feel like you you now I know what I'm doing and I've 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 got I've I've fig I've honed in on this. So say f first episode, how did that go? And was there, you know, how did you approach the very first time that you attempted to score uh, an episode of Venture Brothers? Um, that's not, well, let, first, let me say, that's not to denigrate the work that I did in the first three seasons. Oh, no, no, oh, yeah. no, not at all. Um, you you were just able, you were just able to, you sort of figured out how to do it in a uh, yeah i don't know a different way i became more accomplished at it um there you go uh um basically i i think i just i spent a lot of time you know like prepping building blocks thinking about 
the world that the Venture Brothers would be in, but also within that world, there is so much um, leeway. Um, and fortunately, I you know I've had a, a lot of spread in in the um, type of musics that I've made. It's good to have that scope. So I really, I mean, I you know really what it involved was like a lot of blocking, you know, sitting down with the director and blocking everything out and blocking out where the cues would be. And, um, and just figuring it out. And I think, I think on the early, in the early um, episodes, I overwrote, you know, I wrote too much material. Um, and then, and then sometimes I would, I would, um, write things that were a little bit, um, try out things that were probably a little bit left field or may not be appropriate, but just see how far I could push it. And then um, I don't do that so much anymore because um, I, I get to know what the universe is for the for the show. And I'd rather have that time to work on other stuff, you know, and um, which is not to say that I can't do, you know, that I don't want to grow as a composer while I'm doing this stuff because I, you know, I, um, I want it to be, you know, as good as possible. And the, the goal is really to, um, to enhance what's there, you know, and to make, make a great show. You know? And I'm like, I'm one of those building blocks. How has your scoring changed from Venture Brothers to Archer? Are there significant differences in in sort of what you're using, what you have access to? I deliberately wanted um, Archer to you know you know to to differentiate Archer and, and Venture Brothers. Um, I think that um, I think that um, Archer. Archer definitely has more jazz, and it has, and it sounded, and it sounds more organic. Um, I think with Venture Brothers, I, there's permission to be extremely exaggerated with um, emotions and reactions, and um, Mickey Mousing, and um, just you know bombast, you know. And I think that that's that's much much more rolled back uh, on Archer. And, you know, and that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing you can do on cartoons, or maybe you can do it on Marvel movies as well. But, um, but it's not the sort of thing that you really do on live action um, films. What's, uh, what are you working on now? What's, what's coming out next? You said you have two albums coming out next year? Yeah, um, one of them, well, one of them is the Archer soundtrack album, the first volume one. Um, which is coming out through IM8-Bit, and that's um, going to be launched later this year. Um, and a an album of string quartets, um, which uh, will be released by Cantaloupe. And um, so those are finished. Um, the next the next thing is to roll off the loading dock will be um, um, probably the Color and Nocebo album. Which is a project um, I've been I, I worked on for a while. It was a solo um, performance project uh, in 
quad. It's quadraphonic. So the um, where I perform solo with prepared piano electronics in front of a um, projection. So it's kind of an illustrated um, performance, but it's in it's in surround sound. Um, so I want to um, make a make the album in surround sound. Um, it's actually all all recorded, but it's a matter of you know making the surround sound mixes and putting it into production. Um, I'm working. I'm currently. I created the second iteration of that, which is called Silver Mantis, and I've been performing that live, um, which is a kind of um, an evolution of that. It's different visuals. Um, the sound, you know, the musical content's totally different, um, but it's also in surround sound. So that will be a trilogy. So um, after Silver Mantis, there'll be a a third third part to that. Um, so, uh, but first, Color and Nocebo will come out after that. I'm working on a new Fetus album, which I've been working on for years now. Um, and there's some there's some good stuff, but I really need to clear out some time to um, to give it the, the love that it needs. Um, and uh, I've also started working on a new Zordox album. We didn't talk about Zordox, but Zordox is a thing that I started. A few years ago, I've done two albums under that name, and I'm working on the third album now. That's uh, what I've been itching to ask about is Zordox because okay. I love that I love that project, and it was released on one of our favorite labels, and that's Miko. Yeah, Editions Miko. Yeah. Unfortunately, Peter Reberg, who started that label, um, died tragically last year, but he was an incredible person and um, a really pivotal member of the experimental music community and um you know he's really very missed you know um yeah we had the pleasure of having peter on very very early in the life of our podcast and yeah definitely definitely missed mm -hmm. yeah and so how did the zordox project come about it's purely electronic as far mm -hmm. as least the the from what i've heard of it i i don't know if there is if there's been any other elements added that's that's the that's that's the uh, MO behind Zordox. It came about because actually John Zorn um, was the, the catalyst. And um, he invited me to um, to perform at the Stone, his club, or in honor of the 100th birthday of William S. Burroughs. And I thought, well, I don't, I don't really have anything. So for, at first I was going to say no, but, but I had just gotten a Moog Little Fatty. And I had had it hooked up to my laptop and I was like running it through MIDI and just sort of cycling it through a few things and, you know, making arpeggios and stuff and like changing the filters. And, and I thought, I wonder if I could just do this for 45 minutes since the stone only holds 75 people and it's not like, it's not like a lot of scrutiny. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'll do it. And, you know, I had been friends with Sarah Lipstate for quite a long time, um, who has a project called Novella. Um, she plays, I don't know if you know her, she plays guitar through uh, multiple effects and creates soundscapes and she's an incredible musician and I always loved what she did and we'd spoken about you know maybe doing something together and I called her and she uh, and said look I'm doing this thing would you like to do it with me and she was just getting back into town a few days before the show and she said yeah so I I made some sketches just sort of some pretty basic stuff with some sequences and top lines and like three synthesizers 
And then Sarah came over and I showed her the chords and I said, you'll, you know, I'll show you where to come in. And that was it. And so we did it and at the stone and it was really good. And then we started, you know, we got some other shows for that and we played in various places and we went down to Austin and played in the festival there. And then Sarah moved to LA. And so um, I just took the project over myself and, and I turned it into an album. And I had, I had recorded some of her guitar parts. So she's on the first Zordox album. So the first Zordox album came out and then I, you know, it, it sort of changed orientation a bit. And I did a, I've done a different live configuration of it with Simon Haynes, uh, where we have three synths and... So and soft synths as well, and a theremin, and um, so we did that for Omnisphere, just for uh, Neospection, the first album for a few shows, and then um, I made the Omnisphere album, Omniverse album, um, which was the second album that came out, and we've only done that live once, and we're going to do the next. We're going to play, do it live in New York, the end of November. But I've started working on. Is, again, this is a trilogy. Um, so mm -hmm. the third and final Zodox album is in the works. Um, I like trilogies. I feel like you can say a lot in a trilogy. Absolutely. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, which is not to say it'll be dead altogether. I think I do have a, another idea for Zodox beyond the third album. But um, I think that that'll be the, I'll say what I wanted to say in this art story arc of Zordox in three albums because um, the third album is like, it's the first two albums has been the, the journey. And then the third album is going to be the destination. That's excellent. Can't wait to check it out. So it just never ends. You're just, you're, you're taking in music, you're making music day in and day out. So what just for, just to, for an example, what does your day look like? tomorrow what 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 is a day in the life of jg thurwell well tomorrow i'm not sure um well I just know, for an I'm, example just any gonna, given day today well today i just i work i'm we're doing a venture brothers movie and i today i worked on the venture brothers movie kind of all day and um and i had a phone meeting about the archer soundtrack about the artwork for that and then I did this, and then tonight I'm going to see. Um, uh, in fact, I have to leave soon because I'm going to see this concert. Rodri Davies, who's um, uh, an experimental harp player, um, also the brother of Anghara Davies, um, who is um, a Welsh violinist who I've done a lot of work with, and she's in the she was in the um, UK version of um, Manorexia. Very cool. Um, which is also a really amazing um, violin improviser and violin and composer for violin. Um, you should check her out. And her partner, Tim Parkinson, who is also was in the UK. Manorexia, keyboard player, is a, also a very good composer and kind of curator and puts on festivals and and stuff in in the UK. So Rodri is Angharad's brother, and he does experimental ex extended, I guess, extended technique harp playing. And he's tonight he's performing pieces by 
Elian Radig and um, Phil Niblock, I believe. Uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Actually, mm-hmm. I'd love to see that. But yeah, we're going to let you go to that gig. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for discussing your, your history with yeah. us and, and all your forthcoming projects and uh, taking a little time out to tell us about what you've been listening to as well. Sure. Sure. Yeah, this was amazing. Thank you okay. so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, right. hey, guys. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noise extra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.